and I'll pick pick this up. So guys, we're uh, turning the video recorder on a little bit late. We've already been talking about uh, the the twin ideas of the teachings of the Buddha is both being small in the sense that there's not that much to it. I know that a lot of people talk about it in the sense, well, you've got 16 of those and 12 of those and eight of those and four of those and five of those and four more of these other things and three of that stuff. And it looks really, really complicated. But the reality is, is that almost all of that is various ways of looking at the teaching. An example is, is that the Eightfold Noble Path, which is actually what we're doing, when it, when the skills that the Eightfold Noble Method develop, when those skills are developed, now those skills become enlightenment factors, the Sambhojana. But it's the same thing. And then we have the balancing of the five faculties, but these faculties are nothing but the items, uh, five of the items on the Eightfold to Noble Path, except that it's in a diff slightly different language. An example here is, is that in the Eightfold to Noble Path, the words uh, Sama Sankapa is used, but in the five faculties, Shraddha or confidence is used different language, but you see in the time of the Buddha, the people do these things and they knew how the language works. But when it's translated out of the ancient language into modern English, many of the connections are not easily seen. And so putting those connections back there together and then you say, oh, well, the five faculties are nothing but the seven factors of enlightenment that have to be balanced in order for them to become the skills, which are the Eightfold Noble Path. OK, so when we put it together like that, another way of looking at it is imagine that the teachings of the Buddha is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And that it comes delivered in a box that has a picture of this puzzle on so that you can see the puzzle, see what it looks like and then put all the pieces together. The problem with the teachings of the Buddha when they came west, it came without the box. Without the box, you've got no clue about what the actual image is supposed to look like. And not only that, but a few pieces are missing. <laughs> but when we get it all together, we can recognize, oh, well, it's just one one thing. It's just this jigsaw puzzle. It should be cut up into 500 pieces, but we can put those pieces back together and see how simple it is. So the next point is, is that not only is it just a simple thing, but it's also a one size fits all. Everyone can benefit from the teachings of the Buddha. And yet in, in psychology and psychiatry, they have the diagnostic codes, a whole big, thick book of descriptions. It would almost be like it this way. Uh, the legal system, state laws or, or federal laws or the local laws or whatever like that, is trying to guide behavior. None of those systems need anything more than just one or two laws. The reason why they are complex the way that they are is because each law is written according to a, a particular behavior that's, an, that's the outcome of, it goes like this, the mind has the thought, 
generating the feeling, and when the feeling gets strong enough, we'll act on it. And often this happens without us even knowing about it, this cycle of thought, feeling, action. Thought, feeling, action happens over and over and over again. And when we begin to see it and pick up on it, we can say, oh, if I change the thought, I'll have a better feeling, and if I feel better, I won't have to do it. I won't have to do the action. Like, go get what I want. And if I want something and I really want it badly, I'll do anything to get it, including hurting people, killing somebody, stealing, lying about it, whatever like that. But if the mind is noble, then the the morality can be very easy. We don't need all of those laws. We only need one. And what is the rule that we need? The one law we need is dukkha. Dukkha Naroda, that's how simple the teachings of the Buddha are. If you see that you are dissatisfied, then come out of that dissatisfaction into satisfaction. And we practice that over and over and over again because our default is being dissatisfied. We were born dissatisfied. The first breath that a baby, newborn baby takes, the first breath he takes is to let out a yell. I remember mine. There I was in this enormous hot tub, swirling water, heated water, bubbling everything, and all of a sudden the earthquake happened. The bottom dropped out, and the next thing I know, Dr. Young has had me by the heels beating my ass. Well, I let out such a yell that I didn't stop yelling until I was about 35 years old. (laughs) We all just start yelling, and we don't shut up. Why? Because we're dissatisfied from very birth. Then, in fact, when we're a newborn, we need to have a lot of nurturing that a baby will bond. You'll, you'll, you'll see, in fact, in, in uh, many quarters, they call it imprinting. But I'm using the word bonding. And if the mother bonds with the child and the child bonds with the mom, then the child's survival is highly likely. But if the mother does not bond with her child or the child does not bond with the mother, then the likelihood of that child dying is very high. And so the, uh, the baby needs to be bonded with in order for it to survive. But by the time we're four, five or six years old, the tables are turned. Mom is withdrawing her unconditional love, her nourishing and puts you to work. Puts you to school. Do your homework, clean up your room, take out the trash, do what you're told to do. And so it all becomes kind of critical then. And so the teachings of the Buddha is let's find a way in our mind to go back to that nurturing that we had when we were infants, where there was nothing demanded of us and we were already okay. And that when we're very little as a child, uh, one, two and three years old, we like to play with everything. So let us get back to being that, where we feel nourished, we feel comfortable and happy, and everything is a toy to play with. Except that now we're doing it with the knowledge and the wisdom of an adult, but we're having the feelings of a child, and we're having the nourishment of a mom rather than the criticism. But most of us are overly criticized 
from early childhood and we grow up with that set of rules, that set of criticisms, and we go around criticizing ourselves for the rest of our lives. Saying that I didn't do good enough and I'm not good enough and I'm not good enough here and I'm not good enough there. And then we begin to compete with others saying, well, if I'm better than him, then that's good enough. And so we wind up competing rather than regaining that feeling of at home, that feeling of nourishment, that feeling of everything is okay and that there is no criticism, that we can stop the criticism. And everyone can benefit from that, whether they have the diagnostic label of schizophrenic or uh, neurosis or psychosis or whatever medicines they're on, everyone goes through that cycle of having unwholesome thoughts followed by unwholesome feelings followed by unwholesome actions that the mind the mind is the forerunner in the time of the buddha by the way they had it backwards than that the, the brahmins looked at it like this that if you do an action that's like carving it in wood or writing it in stone or writing it on a piece of paper but but your verbiage, your language is like writing it in the sand. And it won't last long. But if you carve it into stone, your behaviors, they last a long time. And then uh, your thoughts are like writing it in water or writing it in the air. That by the time your finger has moved, so has uh, the the writing that you're putting down has disappeared. It doesn't stay, right? And so in that regard, and I've seen many people, in fact, um, uh, the guy's name is uh, Penn in the group of Penn and Teller. And Penn has talked about this. In fact, the laws have to do with your behavior and that your thoughts are private. So I can think about robbing the bank, but until the cops can gain evidence of it, then it's okay to have the thoughts to rob the bank. Even if I have the thoughts to take me to the hardware store and by buying the hardware to make the bomb to help me break in, right? Okay, but the act of actually breaking into the bank is the rule. That's the law. And uh, that the mind being the forerunner is not the issue because it's the actual actions that matter in our society. That's why we've got such a messed up society. Is because the Buddha says is that the mind is the forerunner. If you don't think it, you're not going to feel it. And if you don't feel it, you're not going to behave according to it. And yet we're out there behaving all the time without even knowing why we're behaving the way that we are. But when we start looking at our behavior, then we can recognize how we were feeling. This is why I give some students the example of uh, in your practice. In fact, both of you can start to practice this. Maybe uh, you've already. And that is use your chair as the anchor. Use the posture where you are as a uh, motivation device for helping you to wake up. And here's how we use that. When you are sitting in a chair, when you get up, we almost always get up to go someplace. So we move from the posture of sitting to walking. 
what I recommend is for you to put the intermediate posture of standing in there intentionally for a moment, for a reason. And that is, is that when you remember that you're going someplace, that you stand up and then you stay standing and ask yourself, why did I get out of my chair? There I was all fat and happy and everything was on. And all of a sudden something happened that was so strong that it made me get up. And so we can say, well, it was because I wanted coffee or I wanted to go to the bathroom or I wanted to go beat that child or I wanted to go shut them up or something like that. But at least we now know why we're doing what we're doing. We're reflecting upon it. And so after we reflect a couple of seconds, then we can proceed on to go do what we were going to do. Now, students, when they talk about this later, they say, you know, many times I was already taking 10 steps before I remembered to do this. And so the answer to that is, well, when you do remember it, stop then and reflect. Why did I get out of my chair and what was so important that I forgot all about watching what I was doing in order to get it. Because here I have taken 10 steps towards what I wanted without even waking up to the fact that I got out of my chair. This is enormously valuable for students to start using these anchors to help us wake up, to come back into this present moment. Because that's where we live, right here, right now. And that will give us an opportunity to say, hey, you know something, I can just sit back down. I don't really need to get up. I was okay before. Or I can go get it. And then when I come back, sit down, that's another opportunity to practice. When we sit down, we normally sit down to make the, the body at ease. We sit down for comfort. That we don't like to stand up all the time. And so we sit down to take a load off. So we can say, well, this is an opportunity to practice taking not only just to load off of the body, the load off of my feet, but take a load off my mind too. This is an excellent point in time. Every time I sit down to take a deep breath and relax and say, wow, I'm glad I remembered that I could sit down and fully sit down with no place to go and nothing to do, and I could just take a moment and relax. And so these are the th a kind of things that we can do throughout the day to help us remember to be in the present moment, because that's what the real teachings of the Buddha is all about, to come out of the past, out of the old habits, out of the old behaviors that we were in, and look at what we're doing right now. That's all there is to it. It's an easy process and it's a one size fits all. Everybody can benefit from this, get enormous benefit. The Buddha talks about it in the Anapanasati Sutta is a practice of great uh, fruit, enormous fruit, great benefit to start watching our breathing, to watching what the thoughts are, to watch how we feel. And not just to watch, but to take the right effort to change. The easiest thing to change is one's mind, to change the thoughts. An example of that is think of the red, the color red. You know what red looks like. Everybody knows the color red. You probably got a Santa Claus kind of shade of red. And now think of the color green. 
and recognize that you just did that. You just changed the mind from red to green. All you have to do now is to remember that you can look at it and recognize you got the red in there. Let's change it to green. That's so much so much easier when we recognize that, yeah, you, everybody can change their mind. You can change it from red to green anytime you want to, every time you can remember to do it. And so the next one is to be able to change the body, to intentionally let the body relax. And how we do that is by first off watching the breathing not by just merely watching and then letting it do whatever it was doing, but actually take control with one's right effort to actually control the breathing, to intentionally take a long, deep in-breath and get the benefit of that, and then intentionally let it out in a sigh, in a relaxed, in a relief kind of way, and then take another deep in-breath, allowing the body to become safe, secure, comfortable and when the mind is safe secure and comfortable and the body is safe secure and comfortable then that can bring on a state of satisfaction the satisfaction added now is the sukha which is exactly opposite of the dukkha being dissatisfied and so practicing with the breathing and with the mind we now are using those two things to start to control the way we feel. If the body is okay and feeling safe and secure and relaxed, then we can begin to feel it. And so we use the mind to train the body and then the skills that we have there, we use now to train to feel the way that we want to feel. This is a good question. If you could feel the way you wanted to feel, how would you feel? Would you feel the way that you were feeling now because you've already decided you want to feel like this? How do you want to feel? You can feel any way you want to feel. And yet we were in the habit of feeling in the way that we were trained to feel. We feel the way that we were feeling when we were children. We got into habit of feeling in a certain way and we continued to feel that same way without investigating it but once we begin to investigate the way we feel we recognize we've got control over the way we feel too even though our language is built otherwise you've heard in our language i feel or i am frustrated i am angry no you're not angry but there is the feeling of anger that is there but you're not the anger so we begin to draw out and recognize oh i see the anger but I'm not angry. I can see the frustration. I can see the anxiety, but I'm the one who sees it. I'm not the one who is it. And so we step out of it and begin to see these cycles that we're caught in. These thought, these cycles of thought, feel, thought, feel, thought, feel, until it builds up, thought, feel, and then outburst of behavior. If we can see these thought, feel, thought, feel cycles that we're in, we can say, oh, well, I can put a stop to that. <laughs> and so the teaching of the Buddha is both simple and it's a one size fits all system. Anapanasati works for everybody. And yet there are 40 different meditations, so they say. 
But according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and quite a lot of Pali research, the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation, and that is this Anapanasati that operates the way that we're talking about. The thoughts, the feelings, our attitude, the body's feelings, the Satipatthana. And so, all we have to do is remember. That's all we have to do is remember. Because the rest of it is actually fairly easy to do. That in fact, when we get on the roll, for many people, the right effort is difficult because they haven't ever done it before. And not only that, but they don't even think that they can do it. They will say something like, well, I did get rid of that thought, but it just came back. And I got rid of it again and it just came back. Oh, poor me, I can't get rid of it. And the answer to that is you just told me you got rid of it twice. You just showed me that you had success twice, and now you're still feeling like a victim. All you need to do is a third time, and then a fourth, and then a fifth, and then a ninetieth, and then a five thousandth. And by the time you can do it five thousand times, you're getting pretty good at it. And so the effort becomes quite easy. But if we don't remember to take the right effort, then we're stuck. That it doesn't matter what skill you have. If you don't remember to apply that skill, the skill's not going to do you any good. All right, your mic has gotten kind of noisy. Yeah, just closing your window. <laughs> ah. Sorry. No problem. We saw it, and we knew what to do about it, and we fixed it. That's on a Panasati right there. All we had to do is just close the window. <laughs> so, Christian, do you have any comments or any questions about what we've been talking about? Uh, no, no questions, really. Uh, maybe just a comment about, uh, you know, before I used to think uh, this process of liberation as, you know, Meditate a lot, sit as much as you can, and, and one day you'll have a big moment of awakening sort of idea. But it's uh, obvious to me now that it's really, it's really a moment-to-moment -moment practice. Mm -hmm. Wake up right now. Why wait Just for 10 years? Up. Why put in all the work of meditation and not waking up and then expect something to happen and you do wake up? Normally, people, when they get into habit of practicing wrongly and don't wake up, they just keep doing that and on and on. I've, I've actually seen people on Reddit that says, I've been meditating 50 years. How dare you come in and say that I can do it immediately? Because I've been doing it for 50 years and can't get it done. And I'm still miserable. Right? That's the attitude that people have when they are practicing incorrectly, thinking that it's going to be out there in the future. In fact, everything is just right now. Even in, out in that future, when you get there, guess what? It'll be a now. Now he finally wakes up. Now he finally decides he can feel good. I mean, what's it going to take? What, what was your idea? I mean, uh, the, uh, I think most people have the idea that maybe the comma machine is going to waltz into the room with Shaktipat and do some ubi-dumi-gabi-gabi meditation kind of uh, uh, lip music or chanting or whatever, splash some water on you, and all of a sudden you feel good because something else did it to you. 
Right. Now you recognize that no, you do it to you. Because it's your choice. Why wait? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think uh, this body and mind is the path itself. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the form that has to wake up. So, this is the basic practice. Back to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. But that's all the Buddha teaches. That in fact, the very complicated topic that Laurent and I have spent some time on called Paticca Samuppada or Paticca Summa, uh, Samapada in the Thai, and also known as dependent origination in English, that's actually nothing but a discussion of the second noble truth. And you can see that it, that it leaves all of the footprints. In the sense of the second noble truth says the cause of dukkha is loba moha dosa, greed, ill will, and stupidity or ignorance. Well, the Paticca Samapada starts with ignorance and winds up in dukkha, and there the feelings are right there in the middle. That's amazing <laughs> that it's just a teaching, and not only that, but the five aggregates are added to that teaching of Paticca Samapada in the sense of there is no self in those aggregates, like the body. You are not the body. Many people are confused about that. They're so confused, we have entire industries, like cosmetic, how about Gucci, Prada, high fashion, Genes, all of this kind of stuff is I am the body. I am, uh, or another expression would be the clothes make the man. Have you ever heard that expression before? The clothes make the man. How you're dressed determines how you fit into society. And that was especially true in the 1930s when you either wore a business suit or you were in rags. Even if your business suit was a rag, at least you were wearing a business suit. And you still see that very much hung over. All the politicians still wear business suits, but many CEOs don't bother wearing those business suits anymore. It's only the politicians now, or maybe the anchors on the newscast. But the uh, uh, and, uh, a clear example of that is um, uh, Vladimir uh, Luzinski, who is the prime minister of Ukraine. He wears a T-shirt. But Putin, he wears a business suit. There's the example there. The clothes make the man, at least in Putin's eyes. All right. So um, if we can get out of that and recognize, no, your mind is what makes difference, not how we're dressed. The mind is the forerunner. The mind is how we decide all of that. And so we can begin to disregard how people are dressed and start looking at, first off, their behavior, because their behavior will reveal how they feel. You, know, you won't ever know what they're thinking, but at least you can see their behavior and you can read how they feel. And so we can only do that when we're watching, when we remember to look. 
And if we can see that in other people, we can also see our own feelings. We can see our own behavior. But with our in our own mind, we can also see the thoughts. Some of them are very fast. Those thoughts actually influence. And so the mind is the forerunner. And so getting a hold of the mind and recognize you can change the mind. You can change the mind and change it into the way uh, that will guide you into the feelings that you want to have. And so if you want to feel safe, then talk to yourself about the fact that you are safe right now. The boogeyman is not under your bed. The bear is not in the closet. The police are not breaking down the door. Well, oh, I can feel safe. And yet many of us will sit in meditation and feel unsafe and not even aware that they feel unsafe. They begin to recognize, oh, I've got anxiety. I wonder where that came from. It came from not feeling safe. If you feel safe and secure and comfortable, then there is no reason to have any fear. And so we actually practice telling ourselves, no fear, nothing to worry about, no dangers, no pythons, no rattlesnakes, no crocodiles, nothing's there. What a relief. No jobs to do, nothing to do, no place to go. Wow, I can just relax. So we practice this over and over and over again. Getting that mind straightened out to where there's no place to go and nothing to do. You can just relax. There's nothing dangerous. Nothing needs to be done. I don't need to get enlightened. I just need to enjoy the enlightenment that there is there now when I'm light, not heavy. But if I want enlightenment that I feel already heavy, you can recognize that wanting something that we don't have. And that's very common for meditators of wanting enlightenment. And they wind up not getting the benefit out of their meditation because they're not getting what they wanted. So they tell themselves, oh, well, you got to do this for years and then you can get it. Rather than, oh, no, all I have to do is change my style and get it right now. You're already enlightened. Get over it. Just relax. You've already won. It's an easy practice, but we have to do it over and over and over again. Um, I was talking to a psychiatrist and mentioned it like this, that most people will go to a psychologist or to a therapist <coughs> and have a session of therapy and to get a whole lot of good advice and get a whole lot of good insights. And then they go home. Then they come back next week and do it again. And that has the quality of imagine that a kid is playing, um, let us say, taking piano lessons. When you take piano lessons, when you go home, you need to practice the piano so that you can be ready for the next lesson. But if the child has no piano, then what is good is it going to do him to take piano lessons for 30 minutes once a week? That's the way that psychology is, or that's religion. Oh, I'll be religious on Sunday morning and the rest of the week. Hmm. No piano to practice. <laughs> Except that the beautiful part is, is that we've got two of the most important things that we need to practice with everywhere we go. We've got our breath and we've got our mind. 
you're ready to go. You're ready to practice wherever you are. All we have to do is remember. Remember to practice. Practice what? Feeling good. Practice feeling safe. Practice feeling comfortable. Practice relaxing. Practicing survive, survive is the Thai word for it. Everything is okay. And we need to practice that over and over again because heretofore we've been practicing, oh, I've got to go do this, or, oh, I've got to go do that, or this needs to be done, or what can I do next? And so we have to change that habit into all the work that needed to be done has already been done. Now it's time to take a lunch break. The whistle just blew. You just blew the whistle. Ah, time to take a rest. You have to remember to blow the whistle. And so that's why I recommend that whistle would be when use the chair as that whistle. That as soon as you stand up, remember to figure out why did I leave my chair? I was comfortable and happy before I got up. What was possibly so important that it made me get up out of my chair? So we could look at our feelings, look at our mind. How many times, Laurent, do you get out of your chair every day? 30, 40, 50 times? Yeah, probably 30. <laughs> yeah, so that's 30 times opportunities to practice right then. Mm -hmm. How many of them can you remember? Uh, at the moment, not much. <laughs> well, in the beginning, not so much, but you keep practicing and pretty soon you'll remember it a lot. In fact, you'll get up mm -hmm. every time you get up and you'll have a big smile or maybe even a chuckle. Ah, caught that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes I even sit back down. Yeah, sometimes you just sit back down. There's no reason to get up. We just got up because we weren't watching what the mind was doing. And so something happened and then we felt and then we got up and we went when in fact there was no need to do any of that at all. So this is about enough that we've had today on this one theme of it's a simple practice and it works for everybody. Doesn't matter what clinical diagnosis, doesn't matter what pills you take, it doesn't matter what your you think your problems are. The only problem you've got is you don't remember that you don't have any problems. So, Christian, do you have anything to say before we finish? No, no nothing else. Just uh, thank you. Thank you for reminding us over and over about this. Over and over again. That's right. That's how it goes. We have to keep reminding, remembering, remind. That's why I get such a kick out of my students, just because that makes me remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have anything? Um, no, that was good. I enjoyed it. Great. Yes. All right. Well, we'll see you guys later then. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. You yeah. made it. I mean, you made my day. This has been really great. <laughs> Thank Have you. Good day, guys. Bye. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye.